My mother's people came by ship and fought at Bunker Hill. My daddy lost a leg in France, I have his medal still. My brother served with Patton, I saw action in Algiers. Oh, we must be doing something right to last 200 years. Well, hello, everyone. It's a few days, of course, until the Iowa caucuses. We're all very nervous. We're thinking... Not me. (laughs) We know we've all got primary politics on the brain. uh, And we kind of, in our last episode, can't remember if that was a paywalled one or not. Uh, Do you remember? No. What did we do in the last episode? We watched the Clinton-Obama debate from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. No wonder I forget it. That's right. In in any case, you know, we kind of did a deep dive into the, you know, into primary politics in that one. And, you know, this week uh, we thought we'd do something uh, a little different, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. But since, uh, you know, the primaries and and the Twitter wars are never far from, uh, you know, our thoughts, and I know all of yours, there were two uh, tweets today that I thought were pretty amusing. So the first was from this guy, Bob Chipman. Now, can you tell me who Bob Chipman is? So I am not an expert in Bob Chipman. I generally consider myself well-versed in the kind of, like, (sighs) dumb, moron film people on Twitter. (laughs) But this is a man who calls himself the movie Bob. Uh, from what I understand, he is a YouTuber of some kind. He's got a blue check mark. He's got a lot of followers. 30,000. And mm. it's baffling to me because I am exposed to him seemingly every day. Mm-hmm. Screenshot after screenshot. And it's all the dumbest. He's he's coming with the takes. He's one of those guys who the Twitter bio is like a coastal elitist, uh, centrist hack, uh, <laughs> fluent in sarcasm. You know, one of those. <laughs> He's not the kind of hack who's like, well, actually, I'm to the left of Bernie Sanders, and that's why I endorse. He's one of those guys that's, that's that that is like self-deprecatingly endorsed. He's like, I'm going to reclaim neoliberal or whatever. Like, it's not a slur. It's yeah. you know, which I like in some way respect. Uh, I don't you know. know. I think it sucks. Uh, yeah, actually, what am I saying? Of course, of course, it sucks. I'm just trying to be contrarian for the sake of it. Anyway, so um, we'll get to Bob Chipman in a second the movie bob yeah excuse me uh the movie bob we'll get to him in a second that's not even a pun the movie bob (laughs) what does that mean i don't know you're the film twitter guy you you can do some investigative digging and tell us next episode movie bob was responding to this tweet from pete Buttigieg that i saw yesterday and amused me Buttigieg tweets in the face of unprecedented challenges we need a president whose vision was shaped by the american heartland rather than the ineffective washington politics we've come to know and expect So then uh, Chipman today, movie Bob, excuse me, quote tweets this and he says, fuck the heartland. I want a president from the brainland of America. We're not going to fix a goddamn thing with folksy know-how and quote unquote values. We're here to fix it with technology, science, and a full-throated rejection of moralistic superstition. The brainland. Yeah. So the Buttigieg tweet, you know, people uh, were pointing out that the heartland is, you know, is a bit of a sketchy concept. It is kind of arguably a dog whistle term that may not have been how Buttigieg meant it but it is you know there's no particular reason why you know the so-called heartland is somehow kind of more legitimate than you know like 
lots of real Americans live in cities as well, right? Like the cultural idiom of like New York City as as a bastion of elitism I mean, it makes sense insofar as New York City is a bastion of elitism. There are lots of non-elites that live in New York City or, you know, innumerable other places. So, so there's that. What I really like about this is that it's essentially two people with channeling the same politics with just slightly different branding. Because you got Mayor Pete here, right? And he's like, look, I'm not one of these washing, Washington machine politicians. You know, I was born to, you know, like a, a fairly well-off, well-to-do family in a college town. I went to, uh, I went to Harvard and Oxford, and then I worked at, I worked in a place very much distant from, you know, the machinations of Washington, uh, the McKinsey Consulting Firm. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to billionaire fundraisers in wine caves, and I'm courting the richest, uh, the richest sections of American society. I, I'm, so many billionaires are giving me money. But hey, uh, it's going to come with a kind of aw shucks, you know, bucolic earnestness or whatever. So that's that's his version. And then Movie Bob is just coming in like guns blazing with the like, fuck you. I don't even want your like folksy down home earnestness. I want my technocratic politics served with all that crap stripped away. But it's like both of them are just, you know, not that Movie Bob is on the same level as Mayor Pete, but like (laughs) what Movie Bob is channeling is just the same politics that Mayor Pete represents or Amy Klobuchar or any of these people who kind of have this Midwestern thing that they do. You know, Beto O'Rourke was another example of that, not from the Midwest, of course. Um, You know, we obviously talked about him on previous episodes, but this is kind of one of the basic formulas that's used uh, and has been used for decades with presidential candidates. You know, Bill Clinton is another example, right? You get somebody who is perfectly acceptable to the beltway, but you're able to kind of pitch them through their personal story or through their branding or whatever is like, this person's really an outsider. Mm. Like they come from the authentic America. And then there was just a one further piece of this story which I think kind of completes the the picture because, you know, Buttigieg also suggested that Biden represented, quote, the same Washington playbook. And Biden, I believe today in Pella, he responded, I don't know know what Pete's talking about. He's a good guy and I'm not going to get into, he must be deciding things are getting a little tight. So a Washington playbook. So, I mean, (laughs) I don't, I'm not entirely sure what Biden meant to say there. But it's great because Biden is like another one of these of these people, right? The credit card, you know, industries man in Washington, the consummate insider who's been a U.S. senator since the 1970s and who still is talked about by kind of the chatterati and by elements of the press as this pro whisperer who has, you know, his finger on the pulse of real America or whatever. Okay, smarty <laughs> pants, who are you endorsing for president then? <laughs> You, you and I are both big members of the Yang gang, obviously. <laughs> I want $1,000. Who doesn't? <laughs> On top of our Patreon money, can you imagine we'd be rolling in it? Oh, man, I'd be a thousandaire. <laughs> Actually, I'd like to bring a tweet to everyone's attention. It was by Drill on January 29th. He said, it's time to destigmatize the balls, dot, 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 and restigmatize the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people say that Twitter is a hell site, but... <laughs> When you see poetry like that. <laughs> and so there's no connection to that. No, no, no. I, Biden, I, Buttigieg, Movie Bob no, saga. It, it's, no, just... no, the thing is, like, I see Movie Bob uh, screenshotted on my feed all the time. And he is interesting in a way. But I always think, God, there was a time when I didn't even know who Movie Bob was. He, he just... Now I feel like I hear Movie Bob's opinions more than I hear the opinions of, you know, members of my own family. Well, if you strike a thorn of rose, keep a going. 
And if it hails or if it snows, keep a going. Ain't no use to sit and whine, cause the fish ain't on your line. Bait your hook and keep it trying, keep a going. So we've watched a lot of bad movies on this podcast, but as longtime listeners will know, we also occasionally put this masochism on pause to watch cinema that we actually enjoy. Um, and it's in that spirit that we decided uh, to watch Robert Altman's 1975 masterpiece Nashville for tonight's show, boasting some 24 main characters and a vast secondary cast including David Arkin, Barbara Baxley, Ned Beatty, Karen Black, Roni Blakely, Timothy Brown, Keith Carradine, Geraldine Chaplin, Jeff Goldblum, on and on and on, uh, and running at 160 minutes. It's a film that's rightly called an American epic. Decades on, it still doesn't feel dated, and if anything, the observations it makes about American culture and politics have only aged it better. As film critic Molly Haskell writes in an essay accompanying the Criterion release of the film, the America that Nashville doled out with stunning prescience in 1975 has become only more so in the subsequent four decades. More addled, its politicians more outrageous, its fundamentalists more strident, its divas more delusional, the lines separating news, politics, and entertainment more blurred than ever. Indeed, political campaigns would take so farcical a turn in the wake of Nashville that Altman's brilliantly oblique take on the subject, the campaign truck of the unseen independent candidate Hal Philip Walker, invented and recorded by the real-life Mississippian Thomas Hal Phillips, blaring its way through the film, was more effective than any direct hit. So what is Nashville about? The film deals in many subjects, all interwoven in a complex tapestry of characters, plot lines, subjects, and themes. Country music and the politics of Americana, the transformation of politics into spectacle, the formless populism that often punctuates presidential campaigns, our collective obsession with celebrity and the hedonism, self-importance, and selfishness the few who obtain it often exude. The film's multi-tiered hierarchies of fame also, in a way, stand in for the multi-tiered class hierarchies that make up American society. The hierarchies, as it were, contain within them many smaller hierarchies, the city of Nashville and its influential music scene being both the epicenter of a cultural empire and a mere province with a thick identity of its own and a sense of fierce independence from the world outside. Ain't no law says you must die Wipe them tears from off your eye Trust the good Lord up on high He'll help Keep a going Keep a going Yes, sir so I think it's safe to say we enjoyed revisiting this movie, one that you introduced me to, in fact. Yeah, I remember bringing this to your apartment a few years ago, back in the days when uh, before we had a podcast and we just, you know, watched movies that we enjoyed. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'd seen this movie before, but I remember for, for the first 40 or so minutes of it, watching it with you that time, thinking, is this going to go well? <laughs> you know, it, it's so vast. It has this enormous cast of characters and it, it has no fixed perspective and it just sort of drifts through all of them. In the early scenes when uh, local country music superstar Barbara Jean is being um, kind of welcomed back to Nashville up to the scene where there's the car crash on the highway. In those early scenes, all of these characters are sort of fragmentarily introduced and they all represent 
you know, kind of a different facet of the American identity to put it in a really hacky, uh, <laughs> hacky way. That's if you're writing when <laughs> the, we, Time, we, the magazine Time magazine, version. like top 100 American films or something. Altman's camera is sort of drifting around, but it never tells you who the important characters are. It never tells you exactly what to think of the tapestry you're seeing. I, I realized watching it this time that there were sort of entire characters and arcs that barely registered with me before. One that have very little to do with anything else in the movie. They don't really connect to anything. And I remember being anxious that first time we watched it together, thinking, is Luke going to like this? You know, not to, not to downplay your capacity to accept a Robert Altman movie, but <laughs> it's so unlike anything that, that gets made today. You know, like if this got made today, it would, it would almost be seen, I think, as an affront. It, it is a movie that uh, I do think requires a certain attention span. If people have seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which uh, is another Altman film, really another really wonderful film, um, very worth watching. I hope we do an episode on it sometime. You know, that's a film that on first viewing, you know, there's a lot that you kind of miss. You know, Altman had a, a sound recording technique that allowed him to kind of have various conversations happening at the same time. And you kind of get catch snippets of them. And um, it can be a little bit disorienting. Also, because the way the film communicates the various plot lines, you're just kind of cutting in and out of people's little conversations and things like that. Yeah, it can be a bit uh, a bit disorienting, but but cumulatively it adds up to something pretty incredible, which is uh, an American epic set against the backdrop of the Nashville music industry and also this populist independent presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what's the candidate's this name? This guy Hal Philip Walker of the replacement of, yeah, party. Yeah, the replacement party, and it's said that he's won a few primaries, and it's unclear. You know, I mean, presumably you know, he's a lock for winning the, the replacement party presidential <laughs> ticket. So he must be contesting like the Democratic primaries or something. Some He's he's some kind of, um, you know, small P populist upstart. And we catch these snippets, even though we never actually see him. Like politics is just sort of the dull background noise. And a lot of the characters are kind of a bit confused by it. And, and they don't really have strong opinions. And But it's just sort of everywhere. This is a particular archetype in American movies, especially at this time, the sort of freeform, populist, mm-hmm. unseen presidential candidate like uh, Palantine in Taxi right. Driver. We are the people. I think there's we a difference the between people. we are the people <laughs> yeah. and we are the people. Little more than a year ago, a man named Hal Philip Walker excited a group of college students with some questions. Have you stood on a high and windy hill and heard the acorns drop and roll? Have you walked in the valley beside the brook, walked alone, and remembered? Does Christmas smell like oranges to you? Well, in a commencement speech, such questions were fitting, perhaps, but hardly the material with which to launch a presidential campaign. Even those who pay close attention to politics probably saw Hal Philip Walker and his replacement party as a bit of frost on the hillside. Summer, if not late spring, would surely do away with all that. Yeah, so this is this is sort of going on through the whole movie. This just formless populism that is kind of culturally hard to place. And it's, you know, because it, you know, it has sort of libertarian undertones. It's go- sort of going after big business, but it definitely doesn't sound like it's 
really, you know, of the left either. One thing that we hear that uh, Walker wants to do is uh, abolish the Electoral College, which um, reminded me that Pete Buttigieg in like, I want to say last January or something was like, we should get rid of the Electoral College and just hasn't talked about it since. But so this is just kind of the presidential campaign is just sort of going on in the background and, you know, is constantly being referred to, but but isn't actually really central to the film. Eventually, certain, I guess, primary characters emerge. There is Ronnie Blakely as Barbara Jean, who is the biggest local country music star, but who's in the midst of some sort of a psychic breakdown. Mm -hmm. She's sort of like the mascot for the Nashville music scene, and there's a wonderful... Um, a wonderful scene early in the film where, you know, she's coming back from hospital and she lands at Nashville airport in this little plane. And they basically have like full military honors awaiting her. Like she's some kind of dignitary returning from like a successful foreign trip or something. So while she's the most popular country music star in Nashville, who we get the sense hasn't quite broken out nationally, Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the true godfather of the Nashville music scene is Henry Gibson, is Haven Hamilton, elder statesman. He's like the governor general of Nashville or something. Yeah, and he takes very seriously his responsibility as being this, this very broad mascot for everything that Nashville represents. Whenever celebrities come to visit town, like Elliot Gould and Julie Christie show up in separate scenes as themselves, he's always making a show of going up to them and saying, well, welcome to Nashville, and uh, we certainly hope you'll remember our uh, filming facilities when you're back in Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah, and his music, which actually opens the film, in fact, you know, longtime listeners of the show will hear for, you know, maybe the third or fourth time the song (laughs) that opens this movie, which is one of his, um, because it's just too perfect not to use but it's kind of a it's kind of a perfect you know aggregation of just different you know americana imagery from kind of the revolutionary war and you know dust bowl droughts and all these kind of things and you could see that both as an artist and a man this is how he sees his role he's kind of an aggregator and a convener of of culture he doesn't really have a distinctive perspective but his broadness has allowed him to kind of rise to the top of this of this music scene. The Hal Philip Walker campaign is courting his endorsement and uh, hinting very strongly at him, tempting him. If Hal becomes president, maybe he can help your political ambitions if you have any. And you want to run for governor. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Henry is talking about this uh, with his wife and they're saying, oh, well, of course, Henry never makes political statements. We donate to everybody in large amounts. Yeah, we don't, but but we don't take sides. Yeah. 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 Even though he's very strongly tempted to actually get into politics. I don't think we ever find out what his answer is. But, I mean, why wouldn't it tempt him? Because, you know, governor of the state is sort of just making official what he already sort of thinks that he's doing. If he can do it without being part of a political party. Yeah, uh, how can I be governor without having any politics or rubbing anyone the wrong way? You know, a minor thing, but I also love that he spends the movie in this kind of ridiculous Elvis-like white jumpsuit because he's famous enough and he can get away with it he can get away with it and also he feels it's his responsibility to dress like this because he can't look like a normal it's a sort of it's sort of like ceremonial garb really Yeah, yeah 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 and he's oftentimes the biggest fish in the pond except when say elliot gould and julie christie show up and then immediately his celebrity status is instantly diminished 
and you can sense that he is just a little bit sore about it. Well, this is kind of what I was getting at in, uh, you know, in the introduction, how, you know, this film shows how there's like class tiers within class tiers in this mm-hmm. movie. You have these celebrities who are just huge locally, but, you know, Nashville, despite being this big cultural metropole, is considered by America at large to be you know, a kind of province or a heartland, if you if you will, right? A lot of the characters in this film are people who are flying in from the coast or whatever, um, basically because they want to, you know, they're like, well, this the, this music is really big with the yokels. The scene is really big with the yokels. This is kind of what the Hal Philip Walker campaign is doing. They're like, how can we get people on board with this? In fact, uh, Michael Murphy, who plays one of Hal Philip Walker's campaign consultants, there's a scene where he's uh, trying to get Barbara Jean in and he's saying to somebody near her, look, you know, this hillbilly music, pe- people love it. Mm. And then when he's talking to the rock group, he's saying, yeah, we've had to book all these hillbillies. It's awful, but yeah, people yeah, like yeah. this shit. But you're going to be the That's only the rock scene group. On, right, right. Yeah. You're the only rock, rock group on stage. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you see this in the non political context too, because, you know, in the scene you alluded to where Elliot Gould comes along, who's playing himself in the movie. You know, all of a sudden, this guy is just a is just a nobody, uh, and he f- needs to sort of establish his place by saying, "Oh, uh, s- send Elliot Gould over so I can so I can kind of welcome him mm. to Nashville." <laughs> and he makes this big show of shaking his hand, even though, like in the scene where he's talking to Julie Christie, he's talking to her, but her attention immediately drifts to somebody else. And then what's great is the conversation he has with his table after she leaves, which he which he says, she's a really big famous actress. She's like won the Academy Award of some picture. I didn't, I don't know. I didn't see it or whatever. Yeah. And it's like moments earlier, he's just <laughs> effusively been acting as, you know, the ambassador of Nashville or whatever. In the Elliot Gould scene, one of his, I think his lawyer, who's also a Hal Philip Walker campaign guy played by Ned Beatty, Somebody explains to Ned Beatty that Elliot, who Elliot Gould is, and Beatty's like, oh, my, my God, I just shook his hand like he was a normal person. <laughs> yeah, Thank sure. you. Thank Good you. Have a lovely Bye. Goodbye. 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 Nice to see you. Well, isn't that an honor? What a surprise. Julie Christie. Even there's been a lot of those movies. Julie Christie, she's a famous star. She's won the Academy Award. No, I'm not kidding. She got it for one of those pictures. I don't know which one it was. She's done so many. So another character in the film that's interesting is the alleged British journalist who is really the only truly foreign character, I think, in the movie. Played by Geraldine Chaplin, who spends the movie going up to people and saying, oh, I'm from the BBC, I'm doing a documentary. Now, during this screening of the movie, you advanced a pretty interesting theory that she may not actually be from the BBC. So tell us about that reading. I mean, she may be from the BBC. She's throughout the movie doing this sort of, like, ethnography. Yeah. Yeah very much exoticizing everything in Nashville. Some of the funniest scenes of the movie are where she's just, you know, wandering around garbage dumps and places where used cars and old school buses have been sent out to die and rambling into her microphone. I'm wandering in a graveyard. The dead here have no crosses, nor tombstones, nor wreaths to sing of their past glory, but lie in rotting, decaying, rusty heaps their innards ripped out by greedy, vulturous hands. She doesn't seem to have any evidence of any institutional backing, and she's constantly being kind of like thrown out of parties. <laughs> and at one point she says, you know, where's my cameraman? You know, and then you'd never see the cameraman. Yeah, like, and would the BBC really play a radio documentary that's just her like <laughs> rambling into a microphone? 
I think however we interpret her character, she's like another cultural tier removed from Nashville. Like if the people from the north and the coast already kind of don't get this, it's so foreign to her that all she can do is kind of exoticize it, as you said. Her way of kind of asking people questions and talking about it is almost a kind of I mean, it's, it's not quite the right word, but it's almost a kind of Orientalism or something, yeah. like an Orientalism of the American South. And, you know, she says some pretty appalling things, like early in the movie when she's watching a gospel group, and she says, do they carry on like that in church or something? And <laughs> yeah, she's like, yeah, yeah. it's marvelous. You take off the robes, and it's, it's hundreds of years ago or, you know, yeah. something. There are a number of other country musician characters. The most talented of them is the one played by Keith Carradine. I believe he wrote the song mm-hmm. uh, I'm Easy, which which uh, is a hit and won an Academy Award at mm-hmm. the time. The best and most charismatic and handsome country music singer in the movie. And he's also, you know, what you'd call a fuck boy now. <laughs> yeah, so he's part of a trio and you get the sense that, you know, whatever their dynamic once was when they were first coming up, he's quickly surpassed the other two. I mean, particularly the other man in the group who is nowhere near as good looking as him and probably not as talented either. And he's kind of at risk of just breaking away and kind of becoming, you know, his own thing. And then there's the complicated sexual dynamics of the group because the other two members are supposed to be involved with one another, but then he's having an affair with, uh, with her. And during the scene where he's singing I'm Easy... There are three separate women in the place. The alleged BBC journalist. Uh, uh, Lily Tomlin uh-huh. as Ned Beatty's uh-huh. long-suffering wife. Uh-huh. And his co-singer in, in the group. All of whom think the song is about them. Yeah. So he's kind of emblematic of, I think, very intentionally of how, you know, talent and virtue are not always correlated, you know? He, he clearly has all the makings of a, of a real star and kind of, you know, deserves to be a star, but he's a total asshole. Just as a side note, he's the best singer in the movie, but one of the things I like about the movie is how it's constantly just kind of stopping dead to let the actors sing country songs, most of which are pretty mediocre, and we hear them in their entirety. Even though they're mediocre, the movie invites us to kind of like the songs, you know? Like, it has a complicated relationship with this kitschy, lower-middle-brow, upper-lower-brow country music. Well, the film itself, I mean, what we said about the Haven Hamilton character, you could kind of say it about the movie. I mean, the movie, and I'm not saying this is a criticism, you know, kind of is very broad in as much as it doesn't give you a perspective on all this. It throws a lot at you, including some kind of smaller plots uh, that we don't really even have time to talk about because it's, you know, a two-hour and 40-minute movie. And it it doesn't really, you know, offer you an editorial point of view. It just kind of lets it all sink in. And in the process, you get a view of, you know, Nashville and I think a view of America, vision of America that's both kind of jaundiced and affectionate. affectionate. Which I think is the right view. Like Altman clearly thinks that there's a lot that's cynical about this. Um, you know, I actually going back to the Keith Carradine character, I mean, I think so much of the country scene is premised on the idea that these people are channeling like the organic, you know, folksy wisdom, the earthy wisdom of, of America mm-hmm. or something. But then, I mean, that Keith Carradine song, he's able to come up with this beautiful song, despite the fact that it clearly doesn't reflect his actual emotions at all. Mm-hmm because he doesn't feel this way about anyone he's a complete you know he's a complete like sexual loose cannon it sort of aesthetically makes sense that the movie climaxes at the nashville parthenon which 
is itself both a kind of spectacular and also ridiculous tourist attraction where like they just they just built the Parthenon in the yeah. middle of Nashville and it's like well it's better than the real Parthenon because it's uh it, it's cleaner and it's new <laughs> and now we have it in America and yet it's it's also you know kind of kind of wonderful so i'm not sure there's much point actually going through the plot of this movie um because there isn't one there isn't really a plot i mean there are there are lots of kind of uh, threads that run through, uh, culminating in this big scene at the Parthenon, where uh, we get a you know the kind of ensemble cast are basically all together, and and all these all these threads are you know woven together. Um, I guess there's one other character who's significant we should talk about. That would be Gwen Wells as Suleen Gay, who's an uh, aspiring singer, part-time stripper, who longs to be the next Barbara Jean, but is terminally untalented. Yeah, and she's a, a useful and important figure in the film because, you know, not only is she, you know, I think fairly sympathetic, um, she's also, you know, a reminder given that, you know, many of the other characters in the film are kind of people who've made it in one form or another, that outside of this world uh, where people have, you know, had some success either locally or nationally, there are many, many more people who were never going to make it. I mean, forget the top. They're not even going to make it to like the lowest rungs of the middle. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to be forever, you know, forever on the outside of this thing for one reason or another. And this is really captured visually in the final scene where after a particularly humiliating night where she's gone to sing and been sort of forced to strip, they they tell her, well, don't worry, because you're going to be on stage at the Parthenon with Barbara Jean the next Mm -hmm. day. And then you kind of see her throughout this quite lengthy scene uh, right at the end of the movie, just right on the the side of the stage, like the first, she's the furthest stage left, just completely out of the action, and it's not clear what's even going through her head at this point. If she, if she still earnestly believes she's going to go and perform with this, you know, great dame of Nash of Nashville country music, or is she going to position this in her own head? Is she going to create a delusion for herself, basically that hey, I was on stage with Barbara Jean, yeah, no or saw me. yeah, or or is she, you know, actually resigned to the reality of it, which is mm-hmm. you know, look, I'm actually never going to be famous, and this is proof. So I guess we'll uh, maybe spoil the ending of the movie. Um, spoilers. Although spoilers, spoilers. I, it is sort of an unspoilable movie. Yeah, definitely. And, and you really ought to see it. Everyone, everyone listening to this should see it. It might sound a little impenetrable because of because uh, we haven't really talked that much about the plot, but it it is uh, it is great fun from start to finish. Highly recommended. But it ends with an assassination attempt on Barbara Jean at this giant Hal Philip Walker rally. Uh, which most of the performers, I think, don't quite realize is going to be a Hal Philip Walker rally. Well, this is what's <laughs> is so interesting because they've all been sort of conned. And, I mean, they know that they know that it's going to become a rally, but then of course, you know, they, they none of them actually expect there to be a big sort of campaign poster and things like that. And it's interesting because it's really they've all just decided one way or you know one way or another either. Um, because they're sort of intimidated or because they think it'll further the careers, you know, to sort of show deference to these, you know, uh, metropolitan elites from outside of town who are saying, hey, well, you know, we're going to do a syndicated thing for the campaign and then you guys could be on TV, et cetera, et cetera. So you all end up at this at this thing, which is a rally, although we never really get to see the rally. We never see Walker in the movie. We just see his stupid van driving everywhere. So after the assassination attempt... 
Haven Hamilton, who is shot, who is sort of grazed in the arm, uh, rushes to pick up the mic and, and he tries to get the crowd under control. And he says, l- l- listen, this isn't Dallas. This is Nashville. Uh, and he encourages everybody to start saying, and I have to say, as ridiculous as the character is and as ridiculous as he even kind of is in this moment i found his actions kind of moving i completely agree like i felt emotional watching him do it and i think this goes back to what you were saying about the movies both jaundiced and sympathetic Mm -hmm. view of america and its kitsch Mm -hmm. culture he's ridiculous but he believes in himself and here is the moment when finally he gets to actually if, be the role that he's assigned If ever to there was a moment to be the self-appointed, you know, governor general of Nashville, this was it. And, and he, he did it. He doesn't fail. He actually takes a mild bullet wound to the shoulder, mm-hmm. um, and but he grabs the microphone and he, and, he, and he keeps the thing together. The crowd doesn't kind of disperse and leave. The guy who fires the bullet, for I think somewhat opaque reasons, is just taken down. And the event sort of just soldiers on as as a wounded Barbara Jean is is carried off and we, we don't know what happens to her and a, an unknown singer played by Barbara Harris grabs the mic and leads the crowd she has her moment into you know, a rendition yeah. of it don't worry me and as they're singing this you know you're always aware of the fact that poor Suleen Gay is still at the side of the stage and she looks a bit defeated in this moment this think, could have been her moment. could have been her she could have grabbed the mic <laughs> You get him. You get him. You get him. But but help her off. I'm all right. I'm all right. Get out of here. Get out of here. Come on. Get up off your head. Wait a minute, man. Watch your head. Y'all take it easy now. This isn't Dallas. It's Nashville. This is Nashville. You show them what we're made of. They can't do this to us here in Nashville. Okay, everybody, sing. Something else I like about the movie is that Nashville is being used as kind of a synecdoche of America, and yet. It's extremely local. It's extremely Nashville specific. It has it has texture. And there's something hilariously provincial about the way Nashville is depicted. Like for example in the Elliot Gould scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to me this is kind of the the primary way I read the movie. As a commentary, I mean, I think not consciously or, or even deliberately, almost on like red and blue America. And, and their kind of, uh, you know, their kind of peculiar relationship to one another. But I, I guess more, put to put it another way, uh, on the way that so much of American culture and politics revolves around these narratives of, you know, we talked about it earlier, the heartland, uh, you know, the Midwest, all these different idioms that are supposed to be synonymous with kind of cultural authenticity in some way. The characters in this film from outside of Nashville who are visiting, particularly the political characters, are really there for one reason or you know alone, and it's to kind of cynically mine all the idioms of Americana that they can. <laughs> Similarly, the arbiters of the music scene in Nashville are both, you know, they have a kind of tortured relationship to this. You know, a lot of them are not big outside of Nashville, but they want to be. And and actually, just as as people from outside of Nashville are not particularly culturally interested in them, you know, they have sort of a, a similar relationship. You know, they're not particularly interested in Hollywood. Haven has not even seen, you know, he knows that Julie Christie is famous, but he hasn't bothered to see any of her, you know, movies. Yeah. The sort of main surrogate of the Hal Philip Walker campaign, we hear him uh, kind of telling various national people about how, you know, we want you guys because, you know, people find those Hollywood people sort of weird and, you know, they think they're communists and, well, you know, a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. 
So Nashville is a stand-in for this peculiar relationship between metropolitanism and localism that defines, I think, so much of American politics and, and, and you know, cultural debate, political debate. You know, Nashville and its figures both want to preserve this, you know, fierce sense of independence, and they don't want to be absorbed from from without, um, while also feeling very important and significant. And like they have this authentic culture that that belongs to the whole country, but they're the they're the keepers of it, and they're going to keep it alive. My timeline was full of Alan Dershowitz today. Uh, you know, I'm not following the impeachment that closely. Uh, I know how it ends. Uh, but I saw a lot of people owning Alan Dershowitz today. Um, I saw a lot of people talking about what a horrible professor he is at Harvard. People saying uh, how poorly he performed at the uh, Trump trial. Uh, you know, just what a despicable monster he is. Um, Accurate. And what I realize is, you know, since we know things are going to be ruled in Trump's favor, why why, why did Dershowitz, Dershowitz uh, he's doing fine. Dershowitz, uh, despite all the everyone owning him, uh, he's actually still winning. And that's because uh, he's playing a different game from you and me, you know? I think that he should actually, like, he shouldn't even bother doing as much work as he does. People say that he's a, a bad professor. They say he's a bad lawyer. Uh, I think he should actually be even worse. I think he should come out and I think he should wear a diaper and I think he should uh, soil himself on TV. Um, I think he should flip the bird uh, and, and I think Trump will still get off. That I think would be a real alpha move on Alan Dershowitz's part because what it would, what it would show once and for all is, listen, like... We're not playing the same game. So like, I, I'm I'm winning because I'm playing by different rules than you. So Alan Dershowitz, if you're listening to this, Will Sloan, co-host of the Michael and Oz podcast, thinks you should wear a diaper. Yeah. Now watch this drive. I've lived through two depressions and seven dust bowl droughts, floods, locusts, and tornadoes, but I don't have any doubts. We're all a part of history. Why old glory ways to show how far we've come along till now, how far we've gotten to go. It's been hard work, but every time we get into a fix, let's think of what our children face into aught. Seven six. It's up to us to pave the way with our blood and sweat and tears. For we must be doing something right to last two hundred years. We must be doing something right to last two everyone welcome to rumble i'm your host michael moore and joining me today is my is a very special guest it's academy award-winning actor 
Robert De Niro. Thank you, Michael. Uh, uh, very glad to be here. So you've been following the impeachment proceedings very closely. What do you What do you think? What are your thoughts on impeachment? Well, my, my thoughts as as an American, I I look at this this man, this 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 president, Donald Trump, and I mean, I mean, he's worse than a dog. He's 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 the low. There's nothing. There's nothing good about him, and 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 to the Republicans, I I I say to you, how dare you? What happened to party over country? You, you, shame on you, shame on you. Now nah, we're just kidding, folks. Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here, as always, with 